show me the way to go home. That's Luke's favorite phrase, show me the way. The way is Christianity. The way is God. And God wants us all home. So anyhow, here's the big question. Do you like God? What would God have to do in order to be liked? I'm not talking about love. I'm talking about like. I mean, what if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us, as that old 90s song went. And by slob, what if God stooped to our slobbish level as humans? Inconceivable? Come on in. Let's check it out. Luke chapter 2, verse 39 to the end of chapter 2. channel. Always glad somebody's here to listen because we like talking God. We like talking about the Bible. We definitely think and are absolutely convinced when people really start listening to the Bible, well, man, it accomplishes its goal. God wants us to ring the chamois of this life out to the best and the fullest that we possibly can. So we need to listen carefully. We need to read our Bibles well. We need to say our prayers, you know, read your Bible, say your prayers, get together with people, have a drink, have some bread, you know, some dinner, and talk God. Talking God, that's where the action is. And the more we talk God, the better off we're going to be. We don't talk about God nearly enough. And that's what we do at the Biblical Channel. But I have been saying that I am so impressed with ESPN's latest round of commercials because they hit the nail on the head when they talk about the greatest story ever played. And they're talking about college football. Great stories have drama, action, and love. Love that makes you do crazy things and people gives you people to root for. And last week we saw that there is nobody better to root for than the underdogs. And it turns out we're the underdogs. That's why it's so cool to root for the underdogs whenever you see yourself and you know yourself as an underdog. And that's what God's doing. Yeah, sure. It has miracles every once in a while, but it has, you know, an opening that sucks you in, a middle that holds you there, and a nail-biting ending that leaves you smiling. And of course, what we've already said is that the new part of the Bible, the New Testament, you know, tacked on to the end of the Hebrew Bible, is, is truly the ending, the nail-biting ending that leaves you smiling in just every way possible. God, like one of us, that's part of the nail-biting ending. God, like one of us, that's mind-blowing. The Bible is God playing out the best story possible. God actually uses history and real people to play out his story. It's magical without magic. It's powerful because it involves everybody, and it invites us to root for God at a very likable level. Yeah, it's going to have some miracles, but my gosh, it's God after all. What would be a good story about God if it didn't have a miracle? And God's stories, hmm, pretty tame on the miracle scale, if you really think about it. We'll talk more about that, but let's pray like we ought to pray. Let's pray like Mary prays, because she's the gal that God gave us to imitate our lives after. So us he-men and our big muscles ought to get on our knees and pray like Mary prays, on an every day, every minute, every, you know, all the time level like Mary prays. And Mary simply prays, my soul magnifies the Lord. Uh, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He's looked on the humble estate of his servant. 
He scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things. He and the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. That's where the story really gets good. Back in Genesis. Thank you, Lord, our heavenly father. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There we go. There's our prayers, man. It's just simple as that. Say your prayers um, and read your Bible. So let's read our Bible. The next passage that we are covering here is Luke chapter 2. Uncle Luke is going to give us a great story. He's the only one who gives us this story. And I know we're jonesing for more, but there's an awful lot here and enough here to, you know, give us what we need. So it goes like this. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town, Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jeru Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast had ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus had stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Mm. Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And, didn't, and they didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And scene, there's the end of our words. Okay, well, let's read our Bibles well by talking about it. And let's talk about what's going on here. Now, of course, we all have inquiring minds that just have to know. And we do know that, you know, Jesus, baby Jesus, um, we don't hear much about him from the time he's a baby until the time he's about 30 years old, except for this little section right here. This is the only thing we get in our inquiring minds that just have to know. Let's be honest. We're only really interested in those possible mischiefs of Jesus, right? We'd like him to maybe be a slob like the rest of us. But the Bible's not going to entertain our inquiring minds at this level. Instead, it tells us exactly what we need to know. And what we need to know, unfortunately for too many of us, is boring. It's boring because Jesus, as he grew in wisdom and stature, was a good guy. That's right. We're bored with what we're told. He grew strong, which means, you know, he's basically physically fit. Um, he was filled with wisdom and he was favored by God and man. He's healthy. He's a good student. He's good in God's eyes. 
and he's good in people's eyes. He's just a good guy. He's a goody two-shoes. Oh, in our popular culture around us today, I don't know if we can handle goody two-shoes anymore, man. So we're bored. We're like, oh, come on. I wanted to know some dirt, man. I want some dirt. And don't we all kind of like in, in some sort of way want dirt on God so that, you know, well, he doesn't have dirt on us? <sighs> Dear Lord, I confess that I'd like to have dirt on you because, well, then you wouldn't have dirt on me. That's the way this world works, though. Not the way God works. And it shouldn't be a big surprise to us that Jesus just fits the normal upbringing side of life. The normal, regular, good people, good kids, good family side of life. Good family just doing it right. So, you know, really, you know, part of the action in this is that Jesus has good parents. Mary and Joseph are good parents. And that's good. That's good. They're action parents. They're parents who, you know, do what they're supposed to do. Be good people to their children. And adoption here. Adoption is God's idea. And, and the Bible itself makes a big deal about how, well, normative to God adoption is. You see, Joseph, the adopted father, you know, the, the stepdad, you know, he he's never second rate. He is Jesus' father. Um, and there's no, no qualms about that. Jo Joseph is never second rate. He is his adopted dad, but he's not, he's not second rate, man. He's, he's prime. He's prime time. He's, he's a prime dad. Um, and you know, he seems to take his role seriously. Jesus takes his role seriously. And that is great for us to see because in that, in that we see a major message that comes up in a number of different ways throughout the Bible, both old and new parts that adoption is cool. Adoption is God's idea. When, when I'm, you know, I know plenty of people that have adopted children and nothing makes me feel more average than to, to, to know my friends who have adopted children, meaning that that is a tall order. That is an accomplishment. That is a feat. That is, that is, you know, a, a supernatural, um, superhuman kind of thing to do. And it's awesome. And, and, um, the Bible celebrates that. In fact, the Bible starts setting up, well, really does set up um, a whole new standard around newborns. You see, the Bible sets up this standard that every child ought to grow up with good parents, that every parent ought to take their children, you know, seriously as gifts from God, and that they ought to do their absolute best to raise their children the right way. But Christianity goes even further than that. You know, a whole new standard around newborns means protecting babies as well. We already heard that, you know, Elizabeth's womb started to jump in the presence of Mary, who was pregnant with Jesus. And, and we start to see in there that there is a real appreciation for babies all the way around. Protecting babies is a Christian thing. After the dust is settled and Jesus is you know, ascended into heaven, Christians will start doing things that people really didn't do before. People, uh, Christians will start providing 
babies with adoptive parents. And that's a Christian thing. Uh, a, a, a gal by the name of Macrina in the 300s was famous for going into the town garbage heaps and collecting babies. Why? Because that was very common in the old world. The old world, as, as Thomas Hobbes would say, is nasty, brutish, and short. Um, and the old world was actually quite brutal to babies. Many unwanted babies just went to the town garbage heap to die. That was common in Rome, in Greece, in Asia, in Africa, no matter where you are, that's what people tended to do with babies. That was very normative behavior. It's Christianity, once on the scene, that rises, you know, erases people like Macrina, who, who goes into the dumps and starts collecting these babies and finding adoptive parents for them. In fact, the Emperor Valentinus would recognize that Christians were taking care of babies and rescuing, rescuing them out of the dumps so much that he actually made a law that just said parents need to take care and raise their children, period. Because it was already becoming such normative Christian practice to collect everybody's, well, babies put out for dead. Well, anyhow, that is something, I don't know if you ever thought about it, but that's a true story every day of the week. You go back, do your history, do your historical research. I read a, I read a volume of books this wide by Will Durant, and Will Durant just comes over and over, you know, putting babies out, you know, for exposure to die was very normative amongst all cultures. Christianity is the one culture that changed things and changed things for the better. Anyhow, so when it comes to, you know, Jesus, one of the things that we've got to see here is that he just was raised in a good scene. Joseph and Mary, they're broke. They're poor people, but he's still raised in a good scene. They take his education seriously. They take his work skills seriously. You know, they have put together, you know, at, on, at an earthly level, good parenting. And we might say to ourselves, but are they really good parents? Because they left them behind. Well, that's part of the humanity in the story. I'm a good parent. I'm a good dad. And you know what? I left one of my kids behind in a store one time. It happens. Those little buggers can just get away from you and you can get caught up in something. And maybe you've never lost your kids and you're already thinking that you're better than me, but don't. Because the story just humanizes Joseph and Mary. Yeah, they were great parents. But in this episode, it was quite easy when uh, a group of people is traveling together. You know, the kids and the fathers and the mothers are all, you know, with their different groups. And everybody thinks they've got everybody accounted for when sometimes you don't. And that's just the way this story goes. And there's no, no problems here. It's not like Joseph and Mary are bad parents. Not at all. Not at all. They head right back to Jerusalem. But, you know, they got a day's journey out. So now they got to travel a day's journey back. And, you know, it takes some time. And they start. And then they finally find him. Okay. So it's a good, good news kind of story. But when they find him, when they find him after three days, you know, he's been, you know, lost for three days. But he's not really lost. And where they find him is sitting in the temple listening to the teachers asking the teachers questions and giving answers and, and, you know, things to say. He has things to say that amaze them in his understanding. So what do we got here? What we got here is that Jesus being raised as a peasant child in a good home was actually raised with an education. You got to stop and pause for a second too and set and, and realize that the rest of the world didn't really take educating, educating poor, the you know, poor people 
or the average people or the ordinary people very seriously. The Jews in the old part of the Bible, the Hebrew part of the Bible, you know, took that seriously. The family was a teaching unit. The family was a schoolhouse. The, that was you know, set up from the very beginning, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Um, and, and, and here we see that continuing on. The family has taken the, the, the role of the schoolhouse very seriously in Jesus. They've taken him to the synagogue. He's learned how to read. I don't know if he knows how to write or not, uh, might, but uh, he knows how to read and he knows how to listen and he knows how to speak and he knows how to understand. You see, that's the key formula. Listening and asking questions is a life skill that parents are to impart into their children's lives. Um, and one of the things I, th I got to broadcast this, you know, loud and clear to our world that we're living in, contradiction is not a skill. Being the contrarian, being the one per the, the person who, who feels like their genius level because they pull one card out of the house of cards and feel like they just collapsed the house of cards. That's the way our society goes. I teach in schools. I'm telling you, man, uh, parents uh, have, have let go of the wheel when it comes to that idea that the family is a schoolhouse, the family is a place for talking, the, pl the family is a place for education, the family is that place. And Jesus has been raised in a great family. And, and that great family has taken him outside of the family as well to synagogue and have exposed him to conversations that the adults were having, you know, so many times that, you know, Jesus has shown himself to be a really good student, like many children are that are raised like that. But Jesus is a great student and, and he's not the, the typical, well, he's, he's, he's not like our, you know, understanding today where we think that if we can say one thing that is negative, that we pull the whole argument down. That is not a skill. That is laziness. Laziness is the way of the con contradiction. Laziness is the way of the contrarian. The contrarian simply says their little, uh, you know, lobs their Molotov cocktail or throws their little jab and walks away feeling all pomp and, uh, uh, you know, pomp and pedantic, you know, feeling like they've knocked the whole thing down. No, no, no. No, you got to build stuff. Education, education is about building skills. Education is about building on listening skills. Education is about building on reading skills. Education is about building and speaking skills and understanding skills. And, and this is the role of the family. Yeah, the school is, is, is a necessary component too, but the family has to come behind and make it all happen. Otherwise it all falls apart. This gives us a really good idea as to what God sees as just very normal. What he expects out of all of us, what he expects out of the family. This is why God rules from the family. He doesn't rule from government. He rules from the family because the family is where God's words need to be talked about need to be, you know, mauled over, need to have questions related to them, need to have understandings, need to have rehearsals, all of this kind of stuff is the normative biblical experience that God has for family. And Jesus, and Jesus is in this very normative environment that unfortunately we must all think, you know, that too many people in, in our day and age find boring because they're not doing it. I'm a school teacher. I don't see it happening. I know it's not happening. So anyhow, we do find it quite funny that Jesus, and we know who Jesus is, but Jesus gets a tongue lashing from mom, right? So Mary's like, you know, why have you treated us like this, son? You know, and then Jesus seems to have a little bit of smart aleck response. 
Um, but it's not a smart aleck response. Um, he says, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? And, and when we hear the word house, we think of a building, you know, and it's not really what Jesus has in mind. Being in my father's house means being in my father's family, being in my father's business, because all of that went together. Family and business all went together. And so what Jesus is basically saying, sitting in the temple, listening to these guys is, hey, I'm in my father's business, man. I shouldn't have. I was not hard to find, really. You should have known I was here. You know how I am. I love hanging with these guys. I love talking with uh, the adults, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, and I suspect maybe he wasn't that hard to find. Anyhow, they find him. But what we can't miss is that Jesus gives his first teaching lesson. And the first lesson that comes off of Jesus' lips as a young lad is quite simple. And that is Israel was to know God as father. And so he knew God as father. He's listening to the Hebrew Bible being taught, and he knows, you know, what the Hebrew Bible says. And he is emphasizing the fact that he knows God as his father. Now we know there's another supernatural side to all of this, and that is that Jesus is the son of God, that he is, you know, God who put himself into Mary's womb and is born as a human being. We know that. And there is, you know, there is that side of things, but what Jesus is setting us up for is that we all are supposed to know God as father. Let me go back to my original question. Do we like God? Is God likable? One of the most important concepts that we need to ask ourselves because sometimes we, we get caught up in the contradictions and the contrarianisms when it comes to Bible and Bible teaching and, you know, Bible study and all of this stuff. When, in fact, we're missing the key point, we're supposed to like God. And knowing God as Father puts us in that situation where we're supposed to like our dad. We're supposed to like our father. And we're supposed to understand God as Father. Israel knew God as Father. We are supposed to know God as Father. And that is an absolute game changer in our lives. If we like God as a good Father, bam, that changes your life. And you know what else bam for? Bam. Thank you, Bible. Bam. That's biblical teaching. The Bible and the Bible alone, thank you, God, tells us that we should wake up every day and go to bed every night with the idea that God is our Father. And not only that, but we're in our Father's house. We're in our Father's business. That's our business for every day to like God as our Father and to be in His business, to take His business with us wherever we are. And this is Jesus' absolute, you know, barn-burning message off the lips of Jesus as, as, as a young, you know, 12 years old, right? But don't miss it because he's 12. Don't miss it at all. Start waking up every day and going to bed every night with that clear head that says, God is my father and I like my dad and I'm in his business. But let's take another step back and let's talk about this thing for real. 
Okay, let's talk about this at the supernatural level. Let's talk about this in its ultimate expression. And that is, God took 30 years out of his schedule to be raised by Joseph and Mary. Think about it. The Word of God. The Word of God actually had a northern hillbilly accent. That's what you sounded like whenever you were raised in Nazareth a hillbilly town in a hillbilly place, and you spoke like hillbillies. In fact, a lot of the people that Jesus would choose to be his closest friends were also from the hill country, and they spoke with a hillbilly accent. That was brought up several times. Check out the book of Acts. You know, nobody's impressed by Peter because he speaks with that northern accent, and that's the same northern accent that Jesus, the word of God, spoke with. Also think about the cosmic king of the universe actually submits himself to parents and acted like a servant. Just let that settle in. The cosmic king of the universe submitted himself to parents, earthly parents, and acted like a servant. He submitted himself to be raised by good parents, Joseph and Mary, and he allowed himself to just go through the normal boredom of life as we know it, to just experience it as we know it. And think about the creator of the world taking up the family business of his father, Joseph, building doors and building furniture. The creator of the world lowers himself to build doors and furniture. Bam! That is mind-blowing. That is wonderful. That is likable. That makes God very, very likable. Now, unfortunately, we find that a bit boring. But the exciting thing about God, as we're being told about right here, is that God is boringly interested in our boring lives. He's interested in the boring life. He's interested at life at the peasant level. He's interested at, in life at the carpenter level, which is no fantastic profession, you know? It's just a profession. And Jesus takes up the profession because it's part of his earthly father's business. He just does it. And again, the Bible is alone here because the Bible is turning our minds into people thinking about God as extremely likable. He's a blue collar worker. He's got a Northern hillbilly accent. He submits himself to parents and he actually acts like a servant when indeed he's the cosmic king, the word of God, the creator of the world. And at the age of 30, Jesus is going to put down his hammer and saw. That's an old joke. I see, said the blind man as he put down his hammer and saw. But Jesus literally put down his hammer and saw at the age of 30. At the age of 30, mind you. So he put in a lot of years just living the boring life, living the studious life hanging out with people, talking God, hanging out with people, listening to the Bible, being read, being taught, asking questions, clarifying questions, reading and giving instructions himself. But he put down his hammer and saw to bring good news to the rest of the poor, like me and you. And with gut level compassion, Jesus' mantra, his stories, his parables, his teaching, 
after he you know, puts down the hammer and saw was all based upon our freedom and our responsibilities, our kindness and our extension of kindness to even the most unlikely of people like our enemies or people that naturally aren't supposed to be our buddies. Progress, making good progress, setting aside bad habits and bad ways, equality that we all share, an equality that, that comes from our creator, God. Jesus, the blue-collar scholar, who is more than that, he's actually God. The story is that God became like us, like us slobs, as the old song goes. But everybody, the fact is that everybody does believe in God. It's just what you believe. And, and you either like God or you don't like God. And if you don't like God, you probably think that he can't be liked, that he's too distant, that he's too out there, that he's too remote from you and your boring life. And that's a shame because God in his story is making it so clear that you are cared for at the boring level, because Jesus himself demonstrates that. You see, the Romans, you know, thought of God and the gods as being so distant from this place because this place was slobbish. The material world was a, a bad place, that the gods had to live in a spiritual kind of environment that was free from all of our slobbish behaviors. The Bible wrecks that, sets it aside. And by the way, that's not just the Romans, that's all religions. All religions tend to treat God like that. But the Bible makes it plain and simple that God became like one of us because he's that way. And he became like one of us so that we would understand how likable he is. So that we would every day wake up and say, I like God. I like God because he's my father. To think of him in personal terms, in blue-collar terms, in, in everyday kind of terms, because he's likable. And, and we, are, we are taking ourselves out of the game when we forget how likable God is and that we were designed to like God. Well, anyhow, that's what we got now. We'll catch you next time. Thank you.